Welcome to the Alexander Standard. Today's episode, Eumenes. Welcome to the Alexander Standard, where we rank all the successors of Alexander the Great, from Perdiccas to Cleopatra the Seventh. So, what's up, Meredith? How you doing? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there, man. So, Meredith, we're talking about Eumenes today. Yes, and to keep on trend to previous episodes, I know nothing about him. Well, that's good to hear, Meredith, because I'm going to tell you all about him. He was one of these weird situations where, you know, like with Arhidias, I had to do so much digging just to stitch together something, and I actually got a good deal of information. Eumenes... I love him to death. I'm going to tell you, like, I'm biased towards this guy. If I was biased against Alexander, I'm going to just go ahead and tell you right now, I love Eumenes. The dude needs a movie. But <laughs> I have to admit, in the grand scheme of things, he really doesn't have this huge impact in the Hellenistic world. You know, once he's gone, he's gone. But my God, we have, like, a lot of information on this guy. Like, we have two biographies about him that survive. Oh, so wow. This, yeah, so we've got, I've got, that's why it took me so long, because I've never just so much I had to sort out in the details. But before we start, we want to let you know about another great show, the History of Persia podcast, hosted by our dear friend Trevor. Before Alexander the Great and his successors, the Persian Empire dominated the known world, from India to Greece, and from the steppe to the Sahara. And after the squabbling Diadochoi were stomped out, new empires rose up in Iran to rule again. In fact, the legacy of the Persian Empire runs straight through the Hellenistic kings. The Seleucid Empire was basically just the Persian Empire, and they were surrounded by dynasts and competitors who descended directly from the ancient kings of kings like Cyrus, Darius, and Xerxes. This is the story of the History of Persia podcast, as told by me, Trevor Cully. So if that piques your interest, find the History of Persia podcast at historyofpersiapodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. So let's just jump right into it. As you know, we do etymologies, and I've recently learned because, you know, I've been going through Czar Power, and they mentioned something about doing etymologies, and they always do it because Battle Royale always did it, and that was a humorous deflation of my ego because for a brief moment I thought we were one of the only ones doing etymologies. <laughs> but it's no, great. No. It's great. It would make sense because <laughs> etymologies are cool, right? Mm -hmm. Now, um, whereas Arhidias was a bit of a wonky name to interpret last time. It was a cool name, though. It was too terrifying. Eumenes is pretty straightforward. So first of all, my man's was born around 362. Okay, so he's a few years older than Alexander. The etymology of his name. According to Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon, Eumenes can mean well-disposed, favorable, gracious, or kindly. It's a compound of two words, the adverb you, like E-U, meaning well, and menos, which can mean force, might, spirit, or strength, 
but also mind, temper, disposition. So thus we get well-disposed, of good spirit, mm -hmm. of good mind, or good strength. So he's um, pleasant. He's a cool guy. He's a pleasant dude. Okay, let's move on. Early life. As I said, ironically, we have much more in source material than most of our preceding subjects like Perdiccas, Antipater, and Arhidias. And actually, we have the most source material for Eumenes since we covered Alexander. Oh, okay. Plutarch and Cornelius Nepos, for instance, wrote biographies of Eumenes, both of which have survived to us in near completion. Nevertheless, not much is known about his early life, except for these <laughs> few details. When do you think we'll ever know about someone's early life? Is it going to be like little Alexander IV since his whole life was his early life? That's a good... <laughs> it's going to be hard to say we don't have details about his early life when he died That's in his all... teens. Yeah. Um, Spoiler. Well, I mean, if anyone, they knew. <laughs> if, if there's any trend that's been going on, people are dying early deaths. Well, no, Antipater yeah. lived in his 80s. Okay. Eumenes was a Greek. He was from a town called Cardia. It was an old Greek polis in the Thracian Chersonese. Now, Chersonese means peninsula, so that's pretty straightforward. Do you remember the significance of Thrace? You're I'm nodding. so sorry. It's okay. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's fine. I do want to point out you. I knew I should have re-listened to the no! very first episode we did. <laughs> no, not at all. Trust me, I sympathize with all the details we're sandblasting. So you'll recall I said that to the Greeks, the Macedonians were like half barbarian. Oh, yes. And so if Macedonian is half barbarian, then the Thrace is even worse. Yeah, so the Thracians are like three-quarters barbarian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the significance here is that even though Eumenes was Greek, and even though he was from a Greek city, which had been there for a couple hundred years, it was an old colony, he was still in the backwoods of the Greek world. He was on the frontier. He lived in the boonies. This is essentially like, yeah, he's an American, but he is from real deep Louisiana. Just like he's mm -hmm. from like the boonies, the backwoods kind of thing. Our cat is from louisiana and she is also quite barbaric i think you'd have to say that's that is true the other significance is that thrace geographically was northeast of greece so it would be modern near modern day bulgaria or getting close to turkey and the reason that's important is because even though he's greek and even though he's living near in you know the thracian regions he's also directly in macedon's orbit Gotcha. So it is no surprise then that his hometown of Cardia had actually signed a treaty of friendship by 352 with Philip II of Macedon, actually to get protection by him against Athens. You read my mind when you were like, oh, for protection. I'm like, I bet it's Athens. Yeah, because, you know, <laughs> Athens and, you know, Philip were kind of, mm -hmm. you know, having proxy wars and fighting for influence in the Aegean region. And so Athens was putting pressure on Cardia, and they were like, hey, Philip, come help us out. And he was so happy to do it. According to an obscure historian, Durus of Samos, Eumenes came from a poor family. And for some reason, they see fit to point out that an indication of this poverty is the fact that Eumenes' dad drove a wagon. Wouldn't I guess. Would imply you had a horse? I know. We, or not, if not a horse, a mule. Maybe it was driven by mules but or still, something like that. Still and, those are, and those are animals of labor. They're yeah. not leisure animals like the horse. True, but then your whole job is transportation of stuff. So it mm -hmm. feel, I'd feel like even to have a, a career as a wagoner, you've got a steady supply of business. But if you're rich, you're the one riding in the wagon. Okay, that's a good point. You're or you're the one having your stuff transported, yeah. Yes. Whatever the case, like for us today, Eumenes came from a poor background. Still, despite growing up in poverty, Duras says that Eumenes had a good education and was also trained in athletics. In fact, 
According to Juris, Philip happened to be in Cardia one day, and he stopped to observe some of the local men boxing and wrestling, among whom was a young guy named Eumenes. Philip was so impressed by Eumenes' performance, specifically his, quote, intelligence and bravery, that he immediately put Eumenes on his staff. Plutarch, however, doubts this story, and he says that Eumenes probably came into Philip's service through a bond of guest friendship that Philip had with Eumenes' father. You know about guest friendship, right? Yes, you don't kill your guests. Yeah, so it's just this unspoken but very widely recognized rule in the ancient world, and I think for a lot of the pre-modern era, that if you have a guest who comes to your house, you show them hospitality. And a lot of bonds are formed that way. Yeah, I've definitely read a few myths going along that topic. Like, for example, there was like an elderly couple that took in what turned out to be Zeus and Hermes in disguise, treated them really well, and so they were rewarded. And this seems to be, according to Plutarch, one of those instances where Eumenes' dad and Philip had this previous bond of guest friendship for some previous meeting, and that's what allowed Eumenes to join Philip's service. Regardless of the fact, Eumenes was a firecracker. He was smart. He was hardworking. Philip really liked this guy. By 336, Eumenes was the private secretary to Philip II, a very prestigious position. Very nice. And even after Philip died, Eumenes was immediately promoted to the same position under Alexander the Great. Excellent. Now, from here, we're at 336. Alexander yes. the Great takes the throne, and now he goes... We, we haven't talked about it a lot, but there was this guy, Alexander yes. the Great. Okay. He, like, picked a fight with Persia. Oh. You may not have heard of it. Anyway. No, I haven't. No. Well, he's probably not going to die or anything and cause a huge disaster, so it's probably going to be fine. Regardless, Eumenes goes with him as the secretary. Okay. Following the train, we don't know a lot about what Eumenes was doing the whole he time. He was tracking exactly 30 days of supplies they had. Yes, he was really good at paperwork. Funny you should say that, because that's about to come up. We yeah. do have a few details. Even though Eumenes was the chief secretary, we need to make sure that we're not misunderstanding that role. Even though people during the period also misunderstood the significance because what I'm getting at here is it's not just that he was a pencil pusher, even though he was, people made jokes about that. The private secretary was a very important position and he was held in equal honor to Alex's closest companions. Much later in Alexander's reign, in 327, this would be during the Indian campaign, Eumenes was given his first command of 300 cavalry to go scout ahead and convince a few Indian cities to surrender. It's kind of like a test by Alexander. And he did pretty well because a few years later in 324, Eumenes was given a permanent position as a senior cavalry commander. The terminologies are kind of obscure. We really don't know when something is, you know, the top command or when it's like one of the high officers. But the point is he's getting promotions. This was a huge honor for Eumenes, particularly because he was a Greek holding a high command position in Alexander's Macedonian officer corps. This thing about Eumenes being a Greek is going to come up constantly because there was a bit of tension between Eumenes and a lot of Macedonian officers in Alex's army, which would persist. According to Plutarch, for instance, a particular commander named Neoptolemus, remember that name because he's going to be important later, he supposedly mocked Eumenes saying that he'd followed the king with shield and spear, but Eumenes had followed him with pen and paper. So already, 
people are making yeah. jokes about the whole secretary thing. Actually, this joke backfired on Neoptolemus because even though he's talking trash... Because he can't read and write. Oh, you nailed it. Oh, really? No, probably, oh, though. okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, but apparently all the Macedonians in the, ar in the army knew that Eumenes was the man, and they knew how much Alexander thought of Eumenes, so they kind of scoffed at Neoptolemus for making this joke. Gotcha. Case in point, Alexander held Eumenes in such regard that he may have been Alexander's brother-in-law. Oh! It's kind of obscure. Early on in Alexander's reign, you'll remember he supposedly had an illegitimate son. Yes, Heracles. Yes, and this was with a Persian noblewoman named Barcina. Now, whether or not Barcina was A, real, and B, actually married to Alexander is a matter of historical debate. I'm going to tell you, though, that the sources are specifically saying that what happens with Barcina gives Eumenes a relationship to Alexander through marriage. That's what they say, but we don't know all the details. I'm just kind of giving you the disclaimer there. If it is the case, here's what happened next. Barcina had two sisters, one of which he gave to Eumenes in marriage. Uh... Now, this is the cringy patriarchy of, I gotcha. of giving a woman in marriage to someone's very apparent, but such is the ancient world. So the idea here then is, as we're saying, if we were to believe this, Alex was Eumenes' brother-in-law. Nevertheless, even though Alexander thought highly of Eumenes, I gotta tell you, Eumenes had a problem, which I totally love him for. It seemed he couldn't shut up sometimes. And I think you know why I love him for that. You see yourself. Yes, because I too sometimes <laughs> don't know when to shut my mouth, as my father and everyone who knows me will all attest. Because apparently Eumenes clashed with Alexander a few times, mostly because he was just running his mouth. Believe it or not, a lot of it was also because he did not get along with Hephaestion. Oh, I thought you were going to say Olympias, because that's been the theme of everybody so far. Right. Olympias pops up later, but not not in a big way this time. I remember like one of the comments from the last episode that someone made, like, Oh boy, here we go into the division of the Empire. Again. And I totally get the point. I'm happy to report with Eumenes. That's not going to be the focus of this episode. Yay. Um, yeah. So Olympias is going to come up, but much later. Hephaestion, you will recall, was Alexander's best friend and mm -hmm. maybe more. Maybe. So arguing with Hephaestion was kind of bold of Eumenes because this was Alexander's dearest friend. Te you're going to love this. We got three examples from Plutarch. One time they were making camp and Hephaestion, who is for a long time Alexander's second in command. I don't think I realized that. I have yeah. been wondering what his job was. Yeah, for a long time, Hephaestion was the actual second in command because he cool. was just and like look, these rank structures are kind of um, obscure for us because a lot of it was informal. But for all intents and purposes, it seems for a long time Hephaestion was the second in command because when he died, that's how Perdiccas got the job. Gotcha. Yeah. At one point, if we don't know the date, Hephaestion gave away Eumenes's room when they were setting up camp somewhere. And he gave it up to a flute player. Well, well that's, that's, that's quite the insult. Exactly. Eumenes thought the same thing. He was having none of this, and he went straight to Alexander and started yelling at him and saying, I guess I should just quit being a soldier. I guess I should just be a musician, play the flute, or be an actor. If it's going to be like that. Well, you do play guitar. I do play guitar. Now, at first, Alexander was actually angry at Hephaestion. He was like, yeah, this, that's, this, you, that's wrong, man. 
But later on, when I, everything cooled down, Alexander like stopped to think about it. He was like, I just let this Greek dude chew me out. That's disrespectful. <laughs> and so then he in turn became mad at Eumenes for just being so disrespectful. Another time, you're going to love this story. This second example is later in the campaign after India. Alexander asked everybody, all of his commanders and his friends to contribute some money to a naval expedition that he was planning. Oh, uh, yes. Yes. We didn't get a chance to talk about it because of time, but it was a pretty expensive expedition and everybody was asked to contribute. Eumenes in particular was asked to contribute 300 talents, but he said that he only had 100 talents of gold on hand. Now, a talent is not an actual denomination of currency. It, it's like a categorization by weight. So it's not an okay. actual coin. Coins would be drachma. So that the... the talent would be just like how much how many coins you had oh, okay nevertheless 300 talents was a lot of money i looked up some some figures and it could be the equivalent of around five to seven million dollars usd well of course you wouldn't walk around with that much money on you right on a so campaign even, right well <laughs> we'll stay tuned for that so even if you minis only had a hundred talents to contribute like you said he's this got was, a lot of money yeah this would still be around <laughs> 1.7 to 2.6 million dollars and this is just this is just one among many indications and reminders to us how lucrative Alexander's conquest of Persia had become. People got rich off of this. I imagine they got rich off of Egypt as well. Absolutely. Well, Alex didn't believe this. He thought that Eumenes was holding back and he had a plan. He's like, I bet that Greek has got the money. Here's what you're going to do. He ordered some men in secret to set fire to Eumenes' tent so mean because he was like well obviously but, but he's gonna he's got a million dollars he can buy a new but it was the idea of like if that guy's got money in there he's gonna run for it he's gonna have to bring it out because yeah. gold melts we're gonna see well this kind of backfired a little bit oh god it burned all the records yeah all the y notes Eumenes is the secretary oh, he's no. the admin he's the chief administrator there's a lot of paperwork in that tent this plan backfired because for one thing the tent went up in flames much more quickly than Alex thought it's like setting the national archives on fire yeah and the tent went up in flames and in the process incinerated a lot of the paperwork documents and receipts all things that Eumenes was taking care of for Alex Plutarch says that this debacle immediately made Alexander regret his decision because then he had to send messages Messages to all of his governors and satraps throughout the empire asking them to send copies of their receipts and their documents because he lost them. Did he say why he lost them? I don't know if he actually took the blame. <laughs> I wouldn't. For I wouldn't. Oops. Actually, I don't think he did, and I'll say that and I'll cover that in a minute. However, the nerd in me can't resist pointing out here that the implication that it was therefore standard bureaucratic process, even in the ancient world, at least by this time, to keep duplicates of all your important records. That's just smart. It is just smart, but it just kind of shows that the ancient world was more sophisticated sometimes than we give them credit for. Nevertheless, despite the loss of important paperwork, it was also discovered that Eumenes was actually in possession of around 1,000 talents of gold and silver in his tent. Sneaky boy. And yet, I think this goes to your point of Alex did not want to admit that he had ordered the fire. Because yeah. even though they discovered a thousand talents of gold and silver in Yemeni's tent, mm -hmm. Alex was too embarrassed by the whole debacle to insist on taking the money. That's just a bad day. Yeah, it is. <laughs> because it's like if you take the money. You're proven right, but yeah. at what cost? As a third example, around 324, um, Yemenes and Hephaestion got into another argument, something unspecified, but probably stupid. The problem is, is in 324 was when Hephaestion died. 
and now there was a lot of tension and friction in the air between both men. So when Alexander, in his grief, started taking out his anger on people who had problems with Ephaestion, it's because he was assuming they were jealous of his friendship with Alex. And this included Eumenes. The only way he was able to get around this was by going to Alex and suggesting, you know, we should honor Hephaestion. He was such a great guy. You know what? I'm going to contribute money. We're going to construct a giant tomb for Hephaestion. Do we still have the tomb? No, I don't know. Oh, okay. I'll look into that. Bad podcaster. The problem is it was like Eumenes had to suck up real, like, quick to save face for that. So he could run his mouth sometimes, but I, I, I have to love him for it. Now, this brings us to 323. I'm going to briefly mention something we've never covered on the podcast before. Alexander does die. <gasps> I know. We can't get into that right now. It's too much. Suffice to say, it was a kerfluffle, and there was no plan for the succession. While everyone was talking about what to do, Eumenes started showing how smart he was. According to Plutarch, Eumenes remained aloof during the negotiations over the settlement of the empire. He just stayed out of it because he said, this isn't for me. He called himself a foreigner, which was referring to his Greek heritage. And he mm -hmm. said that, you know, I'm not getting into this. However, his private opinion was that he sided with Perdiccas. Because okay. one, one thing we're going to see about Eumenes is that when he chooses a side, he sticks to it. And he sided with Perdiccas because, as we saw, the one thing Alexander did do, from all that we can tell, is he did give his signet ring to Perdiccas. Yeah. And so Eumenes is looking at this and he says, Alexander said Perdiccas is in charge, so that's the dude I'm going with. There's just no other option. Mm -hmm. And Eumenes is also loyal to the kings. Keep that in mind. Okay? Okay. So that's it because, I mean, as far as like, that's all we're going to talk about the negotiations and the division of the empire. And when it was all said and done, everyone got a piece, as we know. Eumenes was officially given control over the satrapies of Cappadocia and Paphlagonia in eastern Anatolia. Now, Meredith, what is Anatolia? Modern day Turkey. Bam. So he's given, so these provinces of Cappadocia and Paphlagonia are going to be, you know, the east central area of modern day Turkey. Problem is, Cappadocia had never actually been conquered by Alexander. Oh, God. Yeah. Another reason I kind of, I'm critical of Alexander because he, well, was, cha he was chasing after Darius. And he didn't. No, I do. I do remember that. He was going on kind of a a loop-de-loop -loop and yeah. that left these pockets that mm -hmm. just didn't cross his path oh that's funny yeah so and in that vacuum a persian warlord a guy named ariarathes had risen to power and was resisting macedonian domination and doing a pretty good job at it and had gone so far to declare himself king in the region so this was you know kind of a two-for-one thing it was a way to kind of fix something that alexander had overlooked but also it was a test for eumenes by perdiccas Let's see what this Greek can do. However, he was fair, and he was like, this is a big job. So, Perdiccas assigned two men, two proven veteran generals, to help Eumenes conquer Cappadocia. One of these guys is going to be dead in 20 seconds, so it doesn't matter. The okay. other one is going to be the other main character for this whole episode. Okay. These two men Perdiccas orders to help Eumenes are Leonatus and Antigonus, the one-eyed. Oh, I know Leonidas is the one that fights it. So Antigonus had been friends with Eumenes during the Alexander campaigns, but Antigonus had gotten left behind early on as a governor, so he hadn't seen him for almost 10 years. Antigonus doesn't like taking orders from people he thinks are lesser than him. So not only does he refuse to follow Perdiccas' instructions, he also refuses to help Eumenes because Eumenes is, to him... Greek. He's Greek, yeah. He's like, I'm not... 
helping this dude. He's a Greek. He's inferior. Leonidas was all about it, though. Leonidas was like, yeah, I'll help him. He did agree to help Eumenes, but this never happened because things got really silly really fast. This brings us to the year 322. By early 322, Eumenes, along with Leonidas, are marching towards Cappadocia, just like Perdiccas ordered. Unfortunately, Leonidas gets distracted along the way because he decides to wait. I don't want to do this. Let's go back to Macedon and help Antipater, the old guy who was left in charge of Macedon, because when Alexander died, Athens and a bunch of Greek cities immediately rebelled, and our buddy Antipater was having some trouble putting it down, and he had asked everyone around him for reinforcements. This uh, rebellion is called the Lamian War, named the Lamian War, pretty much because for a long time Antipater had to retreat inside the fortified city of Lamia, while he waited on reinforcements. Yeah, this is all ringing a bell. He's barely hanging on. And then Leonidas gets a letter from somebody. Alex's sister. That's right. Yes. Alexander's sister, his full sister, Cleopatra, sends Leonidas a message and she says, Hey, big boy. Let's get married. Let's get married. And also, I'm Alexander's sister. And if you married me, you could probably take the throne of Macedon and become king. So... Leonidas is doing two things at once here. He is on ostensibly going to help Antipater, but his <laughs> real motive was that he wants to seize the throne of Macedon. Yeah. So he, tell, he tells Eumenes, like, dude, forget Cappadocia. Let's go to Macedon. Let's it's help. Let's, let's totally help, quotation marks. Plutarch says that Eumenes refused, mm -hmm. either because he didn't trust Antipater or because he thought Leonidas was just stupid. That's a common theme. It is a common theme. After Eumenes refused, Leonidas may have actually tried to kill him. Oh. But but Eumenes is smart and left in the middle of the night, taking 500 soldiers and 5,000 talents of gold. Ooh. So we're talking the equivalent of billions of dollars he's got. That is heavy. And Eumenes went straight back to Perdiccas. Okay. This proved to Perdiccas that Eumenes could be trusted. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm going to reward this guy. He gives him another promotion. He's like, all right, Eumenes, you're a permanent member of my council now. You're one of my right-hand dudes. Now, as far as Leonidas, we know what happens with him. He does go to Macedon, and he tries to help Antipater, but he dies yeah. in the very first battle. So, all that for nothing. Again, Eumenes is just so smart. <laughs> and Perdiccas said, let's make sure that you actually get your satrapy that I promised you. I guess I'll do it myself. Probably wanted to keep Eumenes happy since he had demonstrated that he could be such a trusted ally. You know, he want to leave this yeah. guy hanging. Meanwhile, Diodorus Siculus says that that Cappadocian warlord, Ariabrathes, had managed to raise a considerable force of 30,000 infantry and 15,000 cavalry. Likely an inflated number. <laughs> but the yeah, point I... is, the point is, Ariabrathes wasn't playing around. I just wouldn't have been motivated enough to live back then. Just because of all the, like, like well, as soon as I, well, if I was like Perdiccas and Eumenes and I heard those numbers, I'd be like, it's fine where yeah, it is. Exactly. We've got, we've got a lot, guys. We can't control what we have. Well, that's what, that's Ptolemy's thing. He's like, you're not going to hold this empire. Just hunker down, you hairy dog. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, Just hold it. So even though, regardless of the inflated numbers, Ariarathes had a big army. But it doesn't matter because these battle-hardened veteran Macedonians mopped the floor with him. They with killed their extra with their extra long sticks. Exactly. They killed four thousand of his troops immediately, captured five thousand more, and also captured Ariarathes himself. There you go. Then Perdiccas tortured and impaled Ariarathes along with all of his relatives, just oh. for good measure. 
and then he directly installed Eumenes as the satrap of Cappadocia. Fun fact, completely unrelated, the Romano-Syrian satirist, a guy named Lucian, says that Ariarathes was 82 when he died, which means oh, he wow. was 82 when he was fighting that battle. Good on well, him. Well, Antipater was 80-something odd these years guys old were, fighting. Yeah, these guys were eating their Wheaties, man. In addition to Cappadocia, Perdiccas also assigned Eumenes to go north and aid another Macedonian general in conquering the kingdom of Armenia. This guy's name was Neoptolemus. Do you remember him? Yeah, he was the uh, jerk making jokes about reading and writing earlier. Yeah, he was the pen and paper dude. Mm -hmm. Well, Plutarch says that Neoptolemus was kind of stupid, a bad general, and he had completely bungled the conquest of, of Armenia. Plutarch says that he was arrogant and his troops were undisciplined. Eumenes tried to talk some sense into Neoptolemus, but to no avail, the guy wouldn't listen. So Eumenes said, fine, do it myself. And he went and he recruited his own native cavalry force. He offered tax breaks to locals who would join up. He paid for and distributed horses to the soldiers himself. Interesting. So pretty soon, Eumenes had raised his own private cavalry force of no less than 6,300 men. That's impressive. Yeah. And again, to emphasize, these aren't Macedonians. These are, for lack of a better word, Asian troops, mm -hmm. Anatolians, local Cappadocians. Their loyalties are different than the Macedonians. They might but not right now, they're loyal to him. Right. They don't really care that he's a Greek. doesn't make a difference to them. That's the end of 322. Now we can skip ahead a bit to the spring of 321. We don't know exactly what Eumenes was doing at the time, but he reemerges in our sor sources right before the outbreak of the First War of the Diadochoi, that means the successors, mm -hmm. which was fought between the factions of Perdiccas and Antipater. As we've seen in previous episodes... Perdiccas was getting a bit picky and choosy with his marriage proposals because by now he was starting to think he might be able to be a king. Do you remember his first marriage proposal? It was Cleopatra, wasn't it? No. No, it was Antipater's daughter. Nicaea, that's right. And then Cleopatra. But now Alexander's sister, Cleopatra, had come a-calling, and Perdiccas was thinking about marrying her instead so he mm -hmm. could make a play for the crown. But oh no. Pretty soon, both Cleopatra and Nicaea arrived at the city of Sardis in Asia Minor. Perdiccas had to make some quick decisions. But oh no! He was confused as to what he should do, to the point that according to a, a fragment by the historian Arian, Eumenes actually encouraged Perdiccas to marry Cleopatra. He's all about the kings, man. The royal line. But Perdiccas's younger brother, a guy named Alketos, he persuaded Perdiccas at least to keep up appearances for the time being and maintain his marriage proposal to Nicaea. Mm -hmm. The thing is, Perdiccas had only asked for Nicaea's hand when he was in a weak position and he needed Antipater's support for the, in the Macedonian homeland. But now that Cleopatra, Alex's full sister, was offering her hand, the proposal to Nicaea was kind of superfluous. In the end, he tried to play both sides. He wanted to keep Antipater happy, in case he needed Macedonian support, so he publicly affirmed his intention to marry Nicaea, but he also sent Eumenes to Sardis with gifts for Cleopatra, assuring her that Perdiccas really wanted to marry her. It didn't work. Antipater found out. The whole thing blew up in his face. You remember Antigonus? Yes, I do remember Antigonus. He was the general that wouldn't help Eumenes. Exactly. Well, Perdiccas hadn't forgot about that. And now he summoned Antigonus to answer for his crimes and get his punishment. But Antigonus found out about that, and he found out that Perdiccas was intending to marry Cleopatra. So he refused the call, 
and instead fled to Macedon, where he told Antipater everything that Purdy was doing. And that's the moment when Antipater made an alliance with Antigonus and Crateros. Let's do a refresher on Crateros. Way back during the Persian War, Crateros was a hero, loved by the soldiers, loved by Alexander. He was almost looked at as a second Alexander the Great. Oh, yeah, because he was the one that was taking all the veterans back to Macedon. And then depending on how you translate Alexander's last words, he might have said to Crateros, not to the strongest. Right. So Crateros was on the way back with those 10,000 veterans to Macedon. There was also a possibility that he would sent there initially to replace Antipater because look, Antipater's in his 80s. Everybody's thinking this dude's got to die any yeah. minute, but he wouldn't. Thankfully for Antipater and Crateros, Alexander died. And so instead of replacing Antipater, Crateros just joined him in Macedon and made an alliance with him. So now you got the three big guys in the alliance, Antipater, Antigonus, and Crateros. Later that year in 321, the first war of the Diadochoi broke out. Antipater, Crateros, Antigonus added Ptolemy to their alliance because Perdiccas had finally, after two years, started taking Alexander's body to be buried in Macedon. Oh, no. sorry. Yeah, to be buried in Macedon, but hold on. It gets stolen. By Ptolemy. Ptolemy hijacks Alexander's Egypt. body, takes it to Egypt. Yeah. So meanwhile, at the same time, Antipater, Crateros, and Antigonus cross over into Anatolia. So everybody's coming for Perdiccas now. After some consideration, Perdiccas was trying to figure out which one do I do? Do I go north and deal with these guys first, or do I go south and deal with Ptolemy? And what, what did he do? He went south to deal with Ptolemy. And his men got eaten by crocodiles. Yep. And then Perdiccas was assassinated. A stabity stabity. And this is what I remember in the Perdiccas episode. I made of I made a conscious point to try not to give too much away, because what happens next is amazing. Perdiccas decides to go south first to Egypt, deal with Ptolemy. In the meantime, I'll let Eumenes hold them off. Just slow them down. It's understood that Eumenes could not stop them, but it mm -hmm. was that he could slow them down until Perdiccas got back. Yeah, it was a delay. By now, you know, 321 was just kind of a lot of maneuvering. And by the time that, that next year, in early 320, Antipater, Crateros, and Antigonus had all crossed the Hellespont into Anatolia. The timeline is a bit wonky, but it looks like the sequence of events may have gone like this. Antigonus might have crossed over first because he heard that Eumenes was still at the city of Sardis hanging out with Cleopatra. Because remember, Perdiccas had sent Eumenes to Sardis with gifts for Cleopatra, reassuring her, hey baby, I actually truly want to marry you. Mm -hmm. So Eumenes was still there. So Antigonus is trying to sneak up on him. Cleopatra heard about this, however, and she warned Eumenes, allowing him to escape. As James Rom points out, this cat and mouse game foreshadowed a lot of Eumenes and Antigonus's future encounters. Remember, I said Antigonus is going to be the other main character of this episode. Yes. So, Eumenes escapes Sardis. Now he's out in Anatolia. He takes this time to gather a huge army and goes to face off against Antipater and Crateros, because by now they've also crossed over. Perdiccas had also assigned two people to join his uh, second-in-commands. First was Alketos, Perdiccas' own brother, and second, that doofus Neoptolemus. Unfortunately, this is when Eumenes starts having trouble, or he starts having some trouble that's going to be a constant theme in his career, which is getting people to follow his freaking orders. Mm. So Alketos, for instance, 
Perdiccas's brother, immediately refuses to fight alongside Eumenes. He oh, said I'm the, sure. He said the army is going to defect Antipater and Crateros as soon as they see him, which was not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. As for Neoptolemus, you remember that rivalry between him and Eumenes? Yes. Well, Neoptolemus remembered it too. You see, <laughs> Neoptolemus by now had become jealous of Eumenes. So he actually, on his own, started opening up negotiations with Antipater and, oh, plot jerk. and plotted to betray Eumenes. Mm. But what always happens, Eumenes somehow found out about this ahead of time, and he jumped Neoptolemus and defeated him in battle. And Neoptolemus only escaped with a few hundred cavalry and started running straight to Antipater's camp. It's going to take him a while to get there. He's a mm -hmm. shitty traitor, right? I, yeah. wonder, I wonder if they're going to meet again. Maybe. So, next... Antipater and Crateros attempted to convince Eumenes to defect from Perdiccas. They are like, we don't have to fight. You can keep all your satrapies. We'll even give you more troops. We'll give you more territory. And an extra incentive that the sources specifically mentioned was, Eumenes, if you join us, then you don't have to fight Crateros. Because apparently, Eumenes and Crateros were also old friends. All the, Remember, all these dudes know Aww. each other. Yeah. yeah. All these guys know each other. They had campaigned with ten, for 10 years with Alexander. Yeah. So a lot of them are buddies and on different sides of the battlefield now. But I love Eumenes. He said no. He said, I'm not switching sides. I'm loyal to Perdiccas and the kings, most importantly. Mm -hmm. In fact, and this is what I love about, what I love about Eumenes, because he had to know this wouldn't work. So he says, no, I'm not switching sides. But I'll tell you what, if you want to switch sides, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Didn't work, but a pretty ballsy move, nevertheless. <laughs> so pretty soon, by now, everybody else had rejoined. So Antigonus had rejoined Antipater and Crateros. And Neoptolemus, who was running away from Eumenes, he also joined Antipater and Crateros. So you got all four of these guys in camp now. So Eumenes is just kind of out there by himself. Exactly. He is surrounded by enemies. He's betrayed by everybody, and he's by himself. And he doesn't know what's going on in the south, but Perdiccas is also gone, too. The four of them, Antigonus, Antipater, Crateros, Neoptolemus, they decide they're going to deploy in three different directions. Antipater was going to go ahead with 10,000 troops and just try to catch up with Perdiccas. Antigonus took a fleet, and he attacked the island of Cyprus, which would kind of also put him north of Egypt, near Perdiccas if he had to, kind of controlling the coastline. Meanwhile, Crateros and Neoptolemus both marched towards Eumenes. Remember what uh, Perdiccas's brother said? Oh, that Eumenes' army would defect the moment they saw the other side coming. Yeah. Well, that was also what Crateros and Neoptolemus were betting on. They were just hoping the mere sight of Crateros would cause Eumenes' troops to defect. That's how popular and how beloved this Crateros guy was. Cannot emphasize that enough. But so Eumenes has that army that's personally loyal to him. So I'm he, guessing like he has Macedonian troops and that little subset exactly. that he recruited. And he's fine. He, he's confident in his, you know, his local troops. But it's the Macedonians that have been assigned to him. He's just not sure if he can trust them. So a little later then, by the summer of 320, Eumenes finally came and engaged in direct battle with Crateros and Neoptolemus at the Battle of the Hellespont. Eumenes also had the same fears that everybody else had. He just assumed if they know that they're fighting Crateros, they're going to leave. They're going to defect. They're going to abandon me. He was outnumbered, and he was outgunned. His army was smaller and kind of green and inexperienced compared to Crateros, who had the large veteran army 
and who was famous. So the answer to Eumenes then was like, I'm not going to tell my men who were fighting. He lied to them. He held back his infantry so that they would not have to engage with the Macedonians. And he told them instead that they were fighting Neoptolemus and some barbarians, just so that they wouldn't switch sides. Then Eumenes scouted ahead, and he chose a place for his camp where he could use his cavalry forces, which were locals, not yeah. Macedonians. To your point, is I'm keeping my Macedonian soldiers out of this if I can. Mm -hmm. This is a cavalry battle. The battle did not go as planned. First, pretty soon in the battle, Craterus, like a good Macedonian aristocratic warrior, led his cavalry charge straight into the enemy line, and that's where he died. Oh! Yeah, just like that. Now, oh, hold on, because no. it's about to get even more stupid. We have multiple accounts, but none of them make Craterus look good. According oh, to Plut no. Yeah, according to Plutarch, Craterus fought bravely until he was speared by a Thracian, and then fell off of his horse. Well, I mean, he died. Yeah, sure. You Crit can't fight bravely after that. Arian said that Craterus fought bravely, but recklessly. And he took off his distinctive, he had like a, a wide-brimmed hat on, which made him more visible, and he was killed by local cavalry troops. Oh, not... so it made him more identifiable. Right. And the local troops that killed him, they didn't care who he was. So they had no reverence for him. The third account by Diodorus Siculus is my favorite, and he just says, oh, uh, Craterus just fell off his horse, and he was trampled to death. It's proof, in the, in the Hellenistic world at least, that not everyone dies a glorious death. Sometimes you get trampled like a Walmart on Black Friday. Oh. A joke that our European friends might not get, but it's one of the shameful side of American consumerism. On the other hand, there's not just Craterus here. Neoptolemus is almost is also out there. And here is one of the most awesome things yet. Neoptolemus and Eumenes met each other on the battlefield. Yes. Old rivals. Here's Diodorus' account in full because it's just the most awesome thing ever. On the left wing, however, where Neoptolemus was arrayed against Eumenes himself, there occurred a great display of ambitious rivalry as the leaders rushed full at each other. For as soon as they recognized one another by their horses and other insignia, they engaged each other in close combat, and they made the victory depend upon the duel between themselves. After the opening exchange of sword strokes, they engaged in a strange and most extraordinary duel. For, carried away by their anger and their mutual hatred, they let the reins fall from their left hands and grappled each other. As a result of this, their horses were carried out from under them by their own momentum, and the men themselves fell to the ground although it was difficult for either of them to get up because of the suddenness and force of the fall, especially as the armor hampered their bodies. Eumenes rose up first and forestalled Neoptolemus by striking him in the back of the knee. Since the gash proved to be severe and his legs gave way, the stricken man lay disabled, prevented by his wound from rising to his feet. Yet his courage overcame the weakness of his body, and, resting on his knees, he wounded his opponent with three blows on the arm and the thighs. As none of these blows was fatal, and the wounds were still fresh, Eumenes struck Neoptolemus in the neck with a second blow and slew him. That Imagine. is the coolest thing you have read to me. They, yeah, these guys are charging. They're coming so fast, and they grab each other, and the horses just keep going, and then it's like a wrestling match. And they just start making out on the battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, I loved you all along. You so know? much, <laughs> man. It's um, like, I tried to write you love letters, but yeah, I but, can't read or write. Yeah, but this is just so epic. Let's go back to Craterus, and let's make this even more sad for him. He's dead. Well, actually, maybe not. <gasps> yeah, I, I did that for a reason, because... By all accounts, he had died. But what mm -hmm. 
supposedly some sources say that he did survive the battle for a while, but he was mortally wounded. So everyone oh, thought he so had he's died. Maybe just languishing there, which is just worse. Yeah. Yeah. So remember, Criteros and Eumenes had been good buddies when Alexander was alive. So when Eumenes heard someone told him, like, "Hey, we think we found Criteros. He's dying." Eumenes rushed over. He tried to save his life, but was unsuccessful. He was, like, screaming. He was weeping out loud. He was cursing Neoptolemus because this was all Neoptolemus' fault. <laughs> That's convenient. Yeah, of course, yeah. But because he respected Cretera so much, he gave him an honorable funeral and sent his ashes back to his wife and children in Macedon. This is something that, like, Eumenes does time and time again. He, re he shows respect for his defeated enemies. Except Neoptolemus. Well, yeah, because Neoptolemus is... He's, the worst. He's a snake, yeah. Thus, in a surprise victory that no one had ever expected, Eumenes had completely defeated Craterus' army in Anatolia. In fact, he did so without even engaging Craterus' infantry, which was 20,000 strong, and perhaps something that was a mistake on the part of Eumenes. He offered to let these guys go if they promised to go home, and they totally promised to go home, but instead they just marched south and linked up with Antipater's army. Yeah, that's not very smart. No. So, according to James Rom, Eumenes had learned a big lesson in his victory. One, the loyalty of the troops could switch on a dime, which could determine the fate of the battle. For instance, had his troops actually learned they were going to fight Crateros, they may indeed have abandoned Eumenes. In such a way, number two, Eumenes knew his strengths, but also his limitations. He couldn't command the same loyalty as Macedonian generals. He had to fight a constant battle to maintain people's cooperation and loyalty, usually with money and by always seeming to be victorious. A single slip-up could compromise his legitimacy. Meanwhile, as we know, Perdiccas was having a bit of trouble down in Egypt. The debacles of the royal army trying and failing to cross the Nile twice, especially after swaths of their comrades were eaten by crocodiles, had brought Perdiccas' troops to the point of rebellion. Nevertheless, it's possible, according to Diodorus Siculus, that if the army had heard of Eumenes' victory over Crateros a mere two days sooner, they may not have rebelled. Alas, they didn't hear about it until after Perdiccas had been murdered, because of which they were instead outraged and condemned Eumenes to death, along with the other former Perdiccans who were now being purged. Oh. As for what... Yeah. As for what happened next, we're well informed and we've heard it a few times by now, so I will spare us all by summing it up into three bullet points. Antipater was given the regency over the kings and the Macedonian Empire, and he returned home to Macedon. Ptolemy went back down south into Egypt. Antigonus, however, was given the command to finish the campaign against Eumenes and proceeded north to chase after him. When Eumenes heard that he had been condemned to death, he dug in, so to speak, and he got ready for a long, drawn-out conflict. Now we're getting into 319, and now Eumenes is on his own, a renegade on the run. Plutarch describes his position in a way that I think sums up the whole situation, and it really kind of shows you why I like Eumenes. Prosperity lifts even men of inferior natures to higher thoughts, so that they appear to be invested with a certain greatness and majesty as they look down from their lofty state. But the truly magnanimous and constant soul reveals itself rather in its behavior under disasters and misfortunes. And so it was with Eumenes. And the reason I think that's a great quote that kind of sums it all up is because in the very first episode of this podcast, I remember telling you that a lot of my favorite guys in this period are the dudes that don't win every battle because we want to see how they act 
in the face of adversity, and Eumenes is the poster child for this. Even though Eumenes is a survivor and a brilliant commander, the point is, the dude just can't catch a break. No. For a while, Eumenes had still managed to maintain a sizable army of around 25,000 soldiers and was ready for battle at a place called Orkinia in central Anatolia. Well, unfortunately, Eumenes has a rat problem, for you see. Antigonus paid one of Eumenes' cavalry members to desert at the height of the battle. Mm. This cost um, Eumenes the battle and 8,000 casualties and the loss of his entire baggage train. Oh, that's all his money. Mm -hmm. Now Eumenes is retreating again with Antigonus chasing after him. But check this out, because this is proves Plutarch's point. First of all, even though he was soundly defeated, and Eumenes still found the guy who betrayed him. It was a doofus named Apollonides. Oh, that guy's a doofus for not running further. Right. And Eumenes executed him on the spot. Good. Then, while retreating, Eumenes, get this, this is, this is so cool. So, Eumenes is retreating. He's on the run, right? Mm-hmm. He was so fast that he actually looped around Antigonus and got behind him. And then he attacks him from behind. Hold on. Yeah, you think, right? So, yeah. Eumenes goes back to the battle site of Orkinia, and he gives all the soldiers, all the dead soldiers, even the enemies, honorable burials. Big PR move. This is really impressed Antigonus and everybody. So Eumenes was still on the run. It was midsummer now, and Eumenes needed to find a place where he could either escape or withstand an assault from Antigonus. Plus, he had some new problems. Eumenes was defeated in the previous battle, but he still had an army of around 12,000 men. Not big enough to fight Antigonus, but so big that he could not move fast enough to escape Antigonus. On top of that, he found out more and more of his soldiers were beginning to defect, and they were going over to Antigonus. Because again, these guys aren't loyal to Eumenes. They're loyal to a paycheck. So, Eumenes had another radical idea that led to one of his most famous stories. Eumenes actually and intentionally disbanded most of his army, just sent him home except for a few hundred soldiers, and he occupied a city in central Anatolia named Nora. Now, Nora was an ideal site for a siege. What are you, what are you smiling about? That's my friend's daughter's name. Oh, baby Nora. Mm-hmm. Little did we know that they named her after this city. I know. I'll have right? to tell her. I'll be like, I didn't know you were such an ancient history fan. Exactly. So Nora was an, an ideal site for a siege. Great fortifications. Abundant supplies. A plentiful source of fresh water. Here... Eumenes could wait out Antigonus, and he could hold out forever in Nora. But there was one problem that he had not anticipated. Even though he had plenty of supplies, he didn't have a lot of room physically. Now, what's one of the things an army needs in order to be efficient in battle? A gym. So you don't get flabby. Exactly. Physical fitness. This. His soldiers and his horses, because remember, part of his little crack Aww. horse is his cavalry. They're they cooped up in there. Exactly. They need a place to exercise. Well, Eumenes has a bright idea. The solution for his soldiers is pretty simple. He just clears out a couple of elongated buildings and makes them walk in circles. That's what I do in our apartment on rainy days. Exactly, yeah. For his horses, however, he had an ingenious solution, even though it was dangerously close to what we might call animal cruelty. But ingenious, sure. Smart, but kind of callous. Hmm. <laughs> I'll put it like this. Depending on how you read it, nobody got hurt. So what he did was Eumenes tied some leather straps to the ceiling of certain buildings, which would then attach and wrap around the torso of the horse, lifting their front end up a little bit. Their front hooves could touch the ground, but they couldn't put their weight on it. Then 
the stable hands would come up and they would whip the horses, make them run. But because they couldn't use their front legs, they started jumping up and down and on their hind legs, kind of hopping around, which the sources say produced a great sweat. But the effect was that they were exercising now. So basically, it was like a very rudimentary treadmill. I don't like it. I don't like it either. Additionally, and I don't know what this quote means, Plutarch says that the horses were fed boiled barley because it made them digest it more easily. Oh, he's making protein oh. shakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so regardless of the problematic nature of it all, Eumenes managed to keep his soldiers and his horses in fighting shape throughout the entire siege. But we'll be right back after these messages. Hey there, it's Dustin here from the Alexander Standard. You know, we've heard a lot of wacky things so far from our sources on the Hellenistic world. From talking animals in the desert, people being ripped in half by slingshot trees, to hordes of man-eating crocodiles, it sure has been a wild ride. But believe it or not, our ancient sources don't always tell the whole truth, and part of a historian's job is to separate fact from fiction. So I thought it would be helpful to give you some information and safety tips on how to interact with your horse. Hey everybody, this is Editing Meredith. I was working on today's episode when I heard Dustin's factual safety tips and decided to clarify a few things. Look, Dustin may be smart, especially on ancient history, but he doesn't know anything about horses. On the other hand, as Dustin has pointed out on occasion, I actually do have experience riding and working with horses when I was younger, so I've decided to interject some correct information throughout Dustin's tips. So to start off, a bit of background on the common equine. Contrary to popular belief, horses actually evolved from flying aquatic insects. Editing Meredith here. Nope, I'm just going to delete about the next five minutes of lies. And the fact of the matter is that horses are famously calm creatures. Just walk right up behind them and give them a push on the old tuckus to get them moving. Don't even worry about being kicked. That is a common misconception. Remember, Horses have incredibly weak legs, so it'll likely feel more like a tickle. See, this is what I'm talking about. This isn't just wrong, it's dangerous. First off, horses are spooked very easily because they're prey animals in the wild and have to be ready to respond to anything unexpected, like a mailbox. Second, they can't see directly behind them, so anything happening there will scare them. Third, a horse's kick is incredibly powerful. They can kick with the force of over 10,000 newtons, which can cause bone fractures and injure organs. You should never, ever approach a horse from behind. The fact of the matter is that no one in recorded history has ever been hurt by a horse. That is also wrong. I am living proof that that is wrong. Now, all of our sources refer to the horses sweating vigorously, and Plutarch even mentions that the sweat would become like a foam. If you see foam on a horse's body, that's equine rabies. Congratulations, you've got a zombie horse on your hands. Again, wrong. Foam on a horse's skin isn't rabies, it's a protein they secrete to help cool down. Lastly, Plutarch says that you should throw boiled barley at a horse, but that's preposterous. You can just feed it to your horse by hand. Just stick your fingers into the horse's mouth to get it going. There's really no wrong way to do this. And don't worry about being bitten. Just like their back legs, there's no muscle there. And horses notoriously have soft teeth and weak jaws, making any potential nibbles feel like a kiss from your horsey. Horses have very strong teeth, and they can actually bite with the strength of over 500 PSI. 
That's twice as much as a human or even a pit bull. If you stick a finger in a horse's mouth, you will not get it back. And that's it. Just follow these basic steps. Do not do any of this. And your horse will love you. They will absolutely hate you. And we're back. So all these plans worked, Antigonus had some trouble keeping Yemenis tied down in Nora, and eventually started to offer negotiations. Yemenis never backed down, however, but kept talking trash to the very end. When Antigonus asked him to surrender unconditionally, Yemenis said that he'd never surrender as long as there was a sword in his hand. When Antigonus tried to negotiate a peace treaty, Yemenis demanded nothing less than the restoration of everything that Perdiccas had originally given him which Antigonus said was impossible. Again, Eumenes knows for sure that things can change on the drop of a dime. Antigonus mm -hmm. was on top now, but that might change. So there's no reason that Eumenes needed to grovel as long as he was able to survive. In fact, when Antigonus heard that Antipater had died in Macedon, and there was a lot of confusion between Polypericon and Cassander, Antigonus started getting bigger plans. And he started thinking, why am I wasting time trying to smoke out Eumenes? when apparently control over the entire empire is in play again. Thus, Antigonus offered Eumenes a third option, complete amnesty. He even offered him an alliance. Whatever the case, after besieging Eumenes and Nor for the better part of a year, Antigonus finally lifted the siege and let Eumenes go. Eumenes stayed in Cappadocia just long enough to re-recruit all of his lost soldiers that he had previously dispersed in the countryside. And after gathering a small army, instead of lingering, he bolted and ran away straight into the countryside of Anatolia, convinced that Antigonus was going to turn on him again, which was probably right. By now, we're very likely early 318. Eumenes is still on the run after escaping Antigonus, and that's when he starts getting messages from Macedon. The sources are pretty clear that this wasn't just one message, but multiple messages from Olympias. Alexander's mom, and Polypericon. As we saw in the last episode with Arhidaeus, things were getting hot in Macedon after Antipater died. Antipater gave the regency of the kings and control of the empire to an old friend of his, an old veteran named Polypericon, the dancing clown, which really ticked off Antipater's actual son, Cassander, who felt snubbed by his dad, and then decided to throw a tantrum and make an alliance with Antigonus to get rid of Polypericon. This little rebellion is also known as the Second War of the Diadochoi. So first, a letter comes from Olympias to, to Eumenes, begging him either come to Macedon, become the regent Alexander the Great's son, Alexander IV. That's was, pretty big. Who was a toddler by now, or at least just keep the pressure on Antigonus. Then another letter comes from Polypericon, writing in Arhadias' name, similarly inviting Eumenes to share in the regency and come to Macedon. Or, if you're not able to do that, Keep the pressure on Antigonus. Turns out that Eumenes didn't need a lot of convincing at all. He agreed to join the war effort. So Olympias and Polypericon sent word to any and all loyal satraps throughout the empire and instructed them to obey Eumenes in everything and gave him supreme command over all of the Asian possessions in Alexander's empire. That but is huge. Right? From nothing. From being a refugee, from being a renegade, now Eumenes has been officially given control of the Eastern Empire. Like, not even Eastern half. This is like 90% of the entire empire he's given. Like, he's the commander-in-chief. Now, these letters are the chief reason that Eumenes is e even included as an episode today. Because our rule was, there's a bunch of these generals. We're only going to talk about the ones who at some point were striving for or had the top position. 
for a long time this hasn't been Yemenis, but if these letters are true, at this moment, he has legally and officially been given a position equal to Polypericon, Regent of the Kings, Commander-in-Chief of the Empire. Now, we can debate on whether or not it's legitimate, but that's enough justification for me because I love Yemenis. That's why he gets to be an episode, because of this one little, one, one little reference. <laughs> so this was a good move also because it turns out there were some prominent commanders out there who were willing to fight against Antigonus, who really seemed to be getting too big for his britches by now, including several thousand of the legendary Silver Shield infantry, commanded by one of the guys who actually killed Perdiccas in Egypt, as well as many of commanders and governors of the eastern satrapies like Persia. Now, these Silver Shield dudes have popped up a few times in our previous episodes. They have been with Alexander since the beginning of the campaign. Thus, they were considered elite not just because of their training, but also because of their experience. Believe it or not, these guys were in their 60s or even their 70s, and they were still fighting. The problem, however, was that once again, even though people agreed, they weren't really enthusiastic about the idea of taking orders from Eumenes. But once again, again, Eumenes thought up an ingenious solution to the problem. He knew that no one would ever follow him for anything less than money. He was a Greek in a Macedonian world, after all. He also knew that he, even though he was seemingly back on top, just like before when he was besieged, he understood that things could change in an instant, as they had several times before. And yet he realized that there was one person whom the Macedonian soldiers and commanders would always follow. You know who that is? Olympias. No. It was Alexander the Great, Meredith. Well, he's dead, Dustin. You might think so, right? I, I know so. But the Hellenistic world is like, <laughs> is like a soap opera. No one's really dead. Yeah, he's dead. So one day, <laughs> you like, mean he, uh. he is dead. Uh, but he's dead, but not gone. Here we go. Here's what happens. He's here in our hearts. So I, I did not mention oh, this. Oh, gotta get the body. Gotta get the body. No. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like how you're thinking, but Yemeni's, he thinks... He, he plays like four-dimensional chess or whatever it is. But what, you got an idea? Trot out baby Alex. Nope. In all his dad's clothes. Nope. Okay, I have no ideas. No, not baby Alex. So what happened is, one day, Eumenes told all the commanders of his new army that he had a vision the night before. Now this is according to... There are several accounts that attest to this vision that Eumenes supposedly had, but I'm going to read you the account given to us by Diodorus Siculus. He said that in his sleep, he had seemed to see Alexander the king, alive and clad in his kingly garb, presiding over a council, giving orders to the commanders, and actively administering all the affairs of the monarchy. Therefore, he said, I think we should make ready a golden throne from the royal treasury, and that after the diadem, the scepter, the crown, and the rest of the insignia had been placed on it, all the commanders must at daybreak offer incense to Alexander before it, hold the meetings of the council in its presence, and receive their orders in the name of the king as if he were alive at the head of his own kingdom. Eumenes, by placing himself on an equality with the other commanders in all the manners that were discussed, and by seeking their favor through the most friendly discourse, wore down the envy with which he had been regarded and secured for himself a great deal of goodwill among the commanders. And by conducting himself toward the Macedonian silver shields in a similar way, Eumenes gained great favor among them as a man worthy of the solicitude of the king. Were you picking up what we're putting down here? 
He's saying he had a vision from Alexander. Yes, but the idea is he's like, Alexander's dead, but they might follow the spirit of Alexander. So if I have the throne set up and I've got the scepter, the crown, everything there, it's like Alex is really going to be here. And he's not giving orders as the commander. He's giving orders through Alexander. So Eumenes is... So he's possessed. No, he's not. Pos- well, I like I like how I like how you're thinking. <laughs> I'm just I, I kidding. Pref- I, no, I think that interpretation <laughs> is more fun. No, he's. It's more like he's. It's like he's the oracle. Yeah. Interpreting the messages from Alexander the God. Yeah, so it's like he's basing his legitimacy on Alexander the Great himself. Eumenes is taking himself out of the qua- out of the equation entirely. He's like, I'm not giving you orders. These orders are coming from Alexander. Mm-hmm. This is why, like, the book by James Rom that I've used for the se- several of our first episodes, that is why... Oh, Ghost on the Throne. That is why the name is Ghost on the Throne, because this is the genius that Eumenes did. He's like, they're not going to follow me, I'm a Greek, but they'll follow the memory or the spirit of Alexander the Great. And it works! And he's just, like, everywhere he goes, he has Alexander's tent and his throne, and he's making everybody worship it, because that makes them shut up and do what they're told. So, Eumenes' spectacular resurgence continued, and pretty soon he had raised a substantial mercenary force, bringing his army back to around 15,000 men. Which is awesome, considering that when he was in the city of Nora, he may have had less than a 1,000. You can't keep Eumenes down. Now, by the end of 318, Ptolemy, down in Egypt, had joined the alliance with Antigonus and Cassander, as well as another of Alexander's former bodyguards... A man, a hulking man, named Seleucus, who's going to get his own episode. All three of these men, Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Seleucus, started to panic because Eumenes' army just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. At this point, Eumenes had gone south from Anatolia, and he was trying to capture the cities of Phoenicia, attempting to create a way to connect with Polypericon in Macedon if necessary. Now, you and I had just listened to so you think you can rule Persia, their episode on Arhidias, and I think they did a great job covering Eumenes' maneuvers here in this second war with the Diadokoi. So definitely go check them out, and I really appreciate them giving us a shout-out, too. So in response to Eumenes, you know, moving into Phoenicia and Syria, which that's why, so you think you can rule Persia, they did a great job, because I had totally blanked on the fact that Ptolemy was also in Phoenicia and Syria, and so when Eumenes is doing this, He's pushing against Ptolemy. Gotcha. So in response to this, Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Seleucus all tried to put the squeeze on Eumenes by attacking him on multiple fronts. Antigonus was coming down through Cilicia, which is like the southeast corner of Anatolia. Ptolemy was hugging the Phoenician coastline and pushing back in Syria, and Seleucus was attacking from Babylon. Even here, surrounded on all sides, Eumenes escaped again, largely unscathed and retreated deeper into old Persia, where his army continued to grow, now reaching about 20,000 soldiers. Now we're in the early months of 317, which were filled with more cat-and-mouse games between Eumenes and Antigonus, as well as Seleucus. Nevertheless, Eumenes' forces continued to grow, and he was based out of, uh, temporarily, he was based out of Susiana in modern-day Iran, just north of the Persian Gulf, where uh, Eumenes summoned more satraps to help him. And apparently he was bringing troops as far away as India, because we have several references to the fact that Eumenes had raised a substantial elephant corps. Aw, lucky is... What is he, the elephant that can only turn left, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we first met him in the battle against Darius, but he's continued with us. 
He's continued turning left. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why he's still in Persia. He's just been going in circles. So Eumenes is getting scary powerful. Indeed, the turn tables had against <laughs> the tables had started to turn against Antigonus. And to put it another way, the cat was now barking at the dog. By June, like, that's a line in the HBO series Rome, and I always thought it sounded so cool. By June of 317, Antigonus had linked up with forces under Seleucus and started advancing towards Eumenes' position at Susiana. So, again, Eumenes is brilliant. He knows what's up. He's like, are you going to try to kick me out of Susiana? No, you're not. So, Eumenes decided to set a trap for old Antigonus. Yeah, Antigonus is kind of getting old now. All right, Eumenes left the city with most of his army. Just abandoned it. He put a garrison in the citadel so it could guard the treasury and went south across the Tigris River. Now, when Antigonus heard about this, he split his forces up. He told Seleucus to go ahead and continue on towards Susiana, get that treasury, get that money. And Antigonus himself went on to chase Eumenes down the Tigris River. The problem was that in doing so, Antigonus had to make forced marches in a very hot time of year, which forced him to march at night and make camp during the day in the shade. Despite this, Antigonus's army still suffered from the inhospitable conditions and lost a lot of men during his march. Eventually, Antigonus arrived at a suitable crossing point for one of the tributary rivers in the area and started sending men across to set it up. And he actually managed to get about 10,000 troops across, but they were scattered and disorganized and setting up pontoons and foraging for supplies which was a perfect opportunity for Eumenes and a crack force of about 5,000 of his own troops to show up and just start massacring Antigonus's forces. Outnumbered two to one, but they were all disorganized and not ready for it. Well, there's something to be said for the element of surprise. Exactly. Now, Plutarch is our chief source for this battle, and it's kind of a confusing account, but it does appear that Antigonus lost around 10,000 of his troops. 6,000 may have been killed and 4,000 taken prisoner. It could be an exaggeration, but even so, it's a huge defeat. After this, we have some more maneuvering and skirmishing, but nothing big happens. Eumenes knows the secret to this is not pitched battles, it's hit and run, stay alive. That's the secret here. Make Antigonus's life hell. We know that Eumenes doesn't take sick days, however, because at one point he had become so sick that his soldiers had to carry him around in a litter. And when Antigonus heard about this, he thought he could capitalize on the moment of weakness, so he got his army ready for battle. But when he arrived on the battlefield, he could see someone being carried in a litter back and forth up the battle line. So even though he was so sick he couldn't walk, Eumenes was still being carried up and down the battle line so he could give orders. Aww. Eventually, after some maneuvering and some skirmishing, Eumenes and Antigonus met at a place called Pare Takane. We don't have a lot of uh, details about the battle, but what we can say is when the dust settled, it was basically a stalemate. Both armies were exhausted from all the maneuvering and back and forth, and they were in disarray, and so both sides were really trying to regroup. Eumenes could have won this battle. So what was one of the constant problems that Eumenes had struggled with since day one? He's Greek. He's not Macedonian, so they yeah. don't listen to him. They don't listen to him. People won't follow his orders. Eumenes ordered his men to go back to the battlefield and secure the battlefield. <laughs> but they wanted to get back to their baggage train and protect their stuff. So they refused to follow orders. Diodorus says that indeed Eumenes was therefore forced to go along with what his disobedient soldiers wanted. And, quote, he was not able to punish them severely when there were so many who disputed his right to command. 
so he's walking on thin ice with everything he does. On the other hand, Antigonus didn't have to worry about this. The loyalty of his soldiers were secure, so he did force his men to go back to the battlefield. Therefore, even though Antigonus had lost around 4,000 soldiers compared to Eumenes only losing 500, Antigonus possessed the battlefield, which allowed him to claim victory, mm. which totally mattered to him, apparently. Nevertheless, credit for the victory really comes down to the matter of semantics. The fact of the matter is, Antigonus had his ass handed to him by Eumenes, and I'm talking about a, here, sir, I believe you drop this kind of handing. By now, it's later in 317. Despite, quote, winning the battle at Paracatene, Antigonus retreated north into Medea for the winter, while Eumenes went into the Persian city of Gabiana, where he had plenty of supplies. Now, in reality, even though he technically didn't win the battle, he's doing great. Eumenes is doing fine. He's holding off Antigonus, he's playing his cards right, he's racking up victories, he's entrenching himself in the eastern provinces. The whole year of 317 is all Eumenes. So let's go ahead and mess everything up. Okay. Yeah, alright, so it's winter of 317, around November, December. Like we said, Eumenes was wintering at a city called Gabiana. His soldiers continued to be disobedient. They didn't want to stay in camp for the winter, they wanted to go to their estates throughout the Persian countryside. Remember, these guys are Macedonians and Greeks, sure. But by this time, after all the campaigns of Alexander, they had been given like some very wealthy estates throughout the entire per old Persian empire. So they've built lives here. They've built homes here. They're also spoiled little whiny babies, and they want to go home. The point is, is that Eumenes did not want his troops dispersed, probably because of obvious reasons. He needed them close together, but they wouldn't listen. According to Cornelius Nepos, that famous phalanx of Alexander the Great, which had overrun Asia and conquered the Persians, after a long career of glory, as well as of license, claimed the right to command its leaders instead of obeying them. To make matters worse, Antigonus heard about this problem and again decided to capitalize on this disunity in Eumenes' camp by attempting another forced march to sneak up on Eumenes and surprise him while his troops were scattered throughout Persia. Remember earlier in the episode, James Rom said that they're going to play this cat and mouse game constantly. This is the relationship they have. Unfortunately for Antigonus, or perhaps fortunately for Eumenes, Antigonus had only gotten halfway there when Eumenes, as always, Heard about it and picked up on his approach. Eumenes held a conference with his soldiers to decide what to do. So, all the generals started to panic and they were convinced that they were going to be killed. Reason is, is because they did the math. Antigonus was five days away. But they all knew it would take at least six days to get all of their troops together. Eumenes, in response, had a big bag of I told you so's. <laughs> he calmed everyone down and said, if they would act quickly and obey his orders, which they had not done before, he would save the day. I just love that he's like kind of throwing a little shade in there. It's like, if you'll do what I tell you, that one thing that none of you ever do, I can fix this. His plan was to delay Antigonus by five more days to give Eumenes plenty of time to gather his troops. You're going to love this because you uh, have a have a penchant for American history, and I wonder if you're going to pick up on something. Here's how, yes, you do. Here's how I it do goes down. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Here's how it goes down. Um, and this is according to Cornelius Nepos, chapter 9, his biography of Eumenes, chapter 9. Eumenes ordered a small body of troops to advance ahead of where Antigonus was approaching, close enough that Antigonus could see them, you know, barely making camp in there. He could see them moving around, but not close enough that he could actually see, you know, details. He's mm -hmm. like, oh, Eumenes' dudes are over there. 
but he wouldn't be able to see how many there were. Yeah. This was in the message that Eumenes was aware that Antigonus was approaching and had therefore lost the element of surprise. Then on top of it, Eumenes also had his soldiers light up huge campfires and spread them out. So if it's like 50 dudes there, instead of them sharing one or two campfires, he said every guy has to set up his own His campfire. own fire. To make okay. it look like the army was a lot bigger than it was. So not only was Eumenes aware of it, but it made it look like he's ready and he's coming. And mm -hmm. he's got a big force. It worked. Antigonus took one look at this, said nope, decided he had been outmatched, outnumbered by Eumenes. And so he delayed his march by taking a longer road. Now, the reason I was asking you what you'd think about that, because you have a little penchant for American history, is I'm pretty sure that that's what the Americans did in the Revolution. One of the tactics was make our camps look bigger than they were so that any British spies who were observing us would think that the Americans had a much bigger force. Not that I'm aware of. Well, I know they I know they made a fake camp leading up to D-Day. Yeah, Patton did that. Decoy yeah. camps. Balloons. But I don't know anything <laughs> about that idea for the Revolutionary War. Well, that was good because my backup example was going to be Patton. So okay. that works, yeah. In the meantime, Eumenes took this opportunity to do what he was going to do the whole time gather his army and patiently wait for Antigonus's arrival my man's a genius by now we're in 316 once again the year started with some maneuvering with the surprise ruin Antigonus attempted some skirmishes and was trying to hit Eumenes supply lines and stuff including an unsuccessful attempt to take away his elephant corps but as always Eumenes was always one step ahead now this leads us up to the battle of Gabiena here Eumenes was once again able to absolutely smash Antigonus in yet another battle. But by now, he was having more of the same problems. But this time it got worse. The Silver Shields are back. Those elite guys. Again, these guys are not spring chickens. Diodorus specifically says that the youngest among them would have been around the 60s, most when they're in their 70s, some even in their 80s. We even have some pretty hilarious intergenerational trash talking here. The Silver Shields before engaging Antigonus's infantry, apparently taunted the other side and basically said stuff like, we're your dads and we're going to whip you and we're, or like, we're going to show you whippersnappers a thing or two. Funny. Your ability to take the most the things that make me laugh the most <laughs> and give me deadpan <laughs> stares never ceases to amaze me. I read these things, I bust out laughing and I'm like, this is going to be great. She's going to love it. And you're like, that's funny. <laughs> I read it, I'm like, that's pleasant. That's <laughs> pleasant. I find this to be humorous. Unfortunately, even though they just did an awesome job in the battle, the commanders of the Silver Shields themselves, remember one of those guys had actually been one of the dudes that killed Perdiccas. Yeah. They're getting restless, always jealous of Eumenes, tired of taking orders from him, because as you said, he's a Greek. And they're just getting sick of this dude, always being right, always telling us we're wrong when we are. Eumenes mm -hmm. heard about this because Eumenes hears everything. And for a, a time, he was like, well, I guess it's time to run away again. Go rot, run and hide in the mountains like I always do. But he actually trusted that the infantry itself, the actual soldiers, would remain loyal. And they did. In the course oh, of the battle, the silver... Nice. Yeah. In the course of the battle, the silver shields absolutely demolished Antigonus's infantry. They killed around 5,000 of Antigonus's soldiers and supposedly didn't lose a single man. You either that's, just so, that's just so far-fetched that it people is, that right? age are doing this. But Meredith, experience, they're going to show these whippersnappers what it's all about. Yeah, but arthritis. I know, right? And mm -hmm. at some point, it's nap time. Yeah. Unfortunately, in just a credit where credit's due, straight-up contest, 
Antigonus's cavalry was much better than his infantry, and he actually managed to defeat Eumenes's cavalry. Pushed them back, smashed them. Eumenes's cavalry retreated, and in the process allowed Antigonus to secure and capture once more Eumenes's baggage train. Mm. Now, those precious silver shields that did such a great job had lost all their stuff. Their money, oh, their wealth. They're going to be pissed. Even their wives were there. Why? That's irresponsible. I know, but it's, I guess it was a family vacation. I don't know. Like, let's take the RV and go fight in a battle in the mountains. That's like Boudicca. Yeah, that's exactly right. And all of this stuff, as you have intimated, was the key to their loyalty. So now everybody's freaking out. Yemenis mm -hmm. is again trying to remind everyone to shut up, stay calm, because you idiots, we pretty much won the battle. And even if we didn't, Antigonus's infantry is shattered. We got him. If we just keep going... Yeah, if we keep pushing. You're gonna get all your stuff back. Just keep going. He can't hold this. You've got him. But his advice fell on deaf ears because the commanders of the Silver Shields immediately started sending messages to Antigonus, requesting negotiations and asking for their stuff back. Now, Antigonus, as you may imagine, he was happy to negotiate. He was like, I'll give you everything back. Guess what? I'll give you more back. Only if you'll just be willing to cooperate. And so, without, in like the sources, oh, like, no. yeah, the sources unfortunately make it give the impression that there was absolutely no deliberation or back and forth. It seems like the Silver Shields wholesale decided immediately to betray Eumenes. They're gonna kill him, aren't they? Stay tuned. They didn't even think twice. All they did was they waited until Eumenes was surrounded and then they pounced on him and arrested him delivering him straight to Antigonus. But... This is crap. Just like Eurydice from the last episode, Ugh. one of the reasons I love Eumenes... Oh no, everyone with the E name, I'm gonna love them and they're gonna die. A really good point. <laughs> Let me check my chart. Yeah. How many more people start with E? Oh. No, there are many. I think we're they're... killing them all. Actually, I think this is it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this might be the one. But just like Eurydice, Eumenes is going down talking trash until the very end. So while the Silver Shields were taking Eumenes to Antigonus's camp, he asked to give one more speech to tell them exactly, in detail, what kind of morons they all were. This is from Plutarch's Life of Eumenes, and I paraphrased it. I'm emphasizing that so no one claims I'm misquoting. To give you the dramatic effect, according to Plutarch, Eumenes held out his hands, which were bound together, and said to the crowd as they listened in silence, You idiots! I mean, this is awesome for Antigonus, but how stupid can you be to surrender after you defeated him? You're selling your own general <laughs> to get your stuff back? Really? You know what? That's fine. That's fine. I ain't even worried about it. Nobody's defeated me. I conquered my enemies. I was just defeated by my own soldiers. That's fine. That's okay. Guess what? Zeus and other gods are watching, and they see you. So you should just kill me right here. Go ahead. Do it. Hey, even if you, even if they kill me over there in their camp, it's still your fault. Antigonus doesn't care. He wants me dead anyway. Y'all dumb. And look, if you're too chicken shit to do it yourself, give me a sword and I'll do it for you. I just need one hand. You can hold the other hand behind my back. I'll just do it with one hand. I don't even need both of them. And if you don't want to give me a sword, that's fine. Get some of those elephants and let them stomp on me. I mean, if you kill me, I won't even be mad at it, because at least that means you had the guts to do it yourself instead of selling me out. You're a bunch of losers. Most of the soldiers in assembly were ashamed to hear this speech. 
But the sol but the Silver Shields doubled down and said they wanted their stuff back. They were ready to retire. They're just sick of fighting. Now, and I they shouldn't it. have been there to begin with. I get it. You're in your 80s, man. It's time to kick back and start <laughs> taking up, you know, home. whittling and knitting and you know, watch reruns of Judge Judy and stuff. I get that, man. But it's like, you shouldn't have been there to begin with. At the end of all, when it's all done, now Antigonus had finally captured Jimenez. The question is, as we often ask in the Alexander Standard, what do? And this is a good opportunity to point out, even though Antigonus has very much been the antagonist. Ah. Uh, yeah. Even though he's much, he's very much been the, the nemesis for Eumenes for this episode. I actually really like Antigonus too. He's been, he's also one of my favorites. It's kind of oh. sad that these two awesome dudes are basically enemies. Yeah. I mean, I respect Antigonus a lot because Antigonus ha seems to have some honor. He doesn't want to kill Eumenes. He respects Eumenes a lot. Remember, from the very start, they used to be friends. Now, Antigonus, you know, there's some racism or the ancient equivalent of racism here because. He just could not fathom a Greek being his equal. Nevertheless, he has a profound amount of respect for Eumenes, and he does not want to kill him. But Eumenes's traitorous men were so jealous of him that they could not tolerate his survival. And in this moment, Antigonus needs all the support he can. Because that's the thing when, when you're dealing with traitors. I gotcha. They, you know, they betrayed their general to you, but that means they'll, they'll stab you in the back just as easily. Yeah. It's like that, that rule, like whenever you're at work and if one of your coworkers is talking trash to you about another coworker, you should recognize immediately that they're probably talking trash about you to other people. Yeah. Like, yes, you brought you minis to me. Good job. I still don't trust any of you. Mm -hmm. So Antigonus needs to make sure that these guys that have just come over to my side, I need to keep them on my side, which means even though I don't want to, I probably have to kill you minis. The other reason why, and the reason that Antigonus really needed all their support was, again, everybody betrays everybody in the Hellenistic world. And even though this, you know, second part of this episode really kicked off with this new alliance between Seleucus and Ptolemy, now they were kind of turning against Antigonus because he was getting too big. And if anyone is listening to this and is kind of scoffing and throwing their head about like, my God, it's just everyone's betraying each other. Yeah, this is the Hellenistic world. So as soon as you see an alliance form, just keep that in mind. They're all probably going to turn on each other because that's how it goes. So he's getting ready to square off against Seleucus and Ptolemy and another guy named Lysimachus. Oh, okay. Yeah. And because he needs to get ready for this new conflict, he wants to keep the support of Eumenes' old soldiers. So he reluctantly consented to execute Eumenes. But when Antigonus told, this is a good quote, kind of kind of shows his respect. When Antigonus put Eumenes in prison... The guard kind of asked him, you know, like, well, you want me to be nice to him or should we mistreat him or should we just ne neglect him? Because unfortunately, that's a thing in the ancient world. And Antigonus looked back at Eumenes and told the guard, you need to treat him like the fiercest lion or the most savage elephant, which is, you know, ancient worldy stuff for like, that man will kill you. <laughs> be careful. <laughs> <laughs> um, apparently, Eumenes had a lot of visitors while he was in prison, and they took three different forms. They were either, one, people who hated him and wanted to see him suffer, like the people who betrayed him. Two, people who admired him and thought he was amazing. And three, people who just wanted to see what the big deal was. Yeah, check and that was the another secretary. Antigonus still dragged his feet for six more days, only relenting to order Eumenes' execution out of fear that the army would revolt. Even so, Antigonus could not bring himself to do violence to a man who had once been his friend. 
this has got ancient world logic written all over it because this is this is Antigonus's this is his merciful choice of action. He's like, well, I can't kill him. I'll just starve him to death, which just sounds worse, right? That's so much worse. It is. It's just so much worse. He's like, well, just stop feeding him then. We look at it as a cowardly way out. It's like I can't bring myself to do it. I'll just ignore him. That's so slow. Right. Unfortunately for Antigonus, but probably fortunately for Eumenes, that only lasted for two days. Okay. Before one of his prison guards strangled him to death without Antigonus's knowledge, supposedly. Okay. Nepos states, therefore, that Eumenes died at the age of 45, 20 years after he had begun service under Philip II, which would have made him 25 at the time, therefore. And so, Meredith, thus ends the life and astonishing career of Eumenes of Cardia. I'm so sad. I know. He's best boy. Best boy. Best so, and here we go. Let's rank him according to our sacred categories. Aristea. Battle prowess. I'm so excited because we have had some duds so far in our episodes. We have had some duds. But now we get to have a discussion, Meredith. What do you think about my man Eumenes and his battle prowess? Yeah, it's tricky because it gets into that thing of he was never, like, defeated, defeated, but there are a lot of times of basically being like, forces are shattered, retreat, rebuild, come back, retreat, rebuild, yeah. come back. Now, albeit, he took out two major generals, one in personal hand-to-hand -hand combat. My That's God. pretty dang impressive. Let's say six or seven, because I don't really feel like I can penalize him for not ending the wars of uh -huh. the Diadokoi. Yeah. I, because they're not going to be over for a really long time. And what we do have are a lot of great military geniuses going right. up against other great military yeah. geniuses. So even mm -hmm. if you end up losing, and also technically, as he was saying in his parting speech, he was not defeated in battle. He was just yeah. betrayed by his own troops. So I'd say six or seven. Yeah. Um, this was a part where I, I was continually reminded of what I said, and I, I mentioned this earlier. Our first episode, my favorites are the people who don't win all the time, but I want to see what they do in adversity. And without planning it, that's when I came across that reference from Plutarch's biography of Eumenes, chapter 9. The truly magnanimous and constant soul reveals itself rather in its behavior under disasters and misfortunes. I was constantly impressed by everything Eumenes did, even though he didn't win everything like you said. It's how he behaved in defeat. He kept coming back. He knew... I think it's Sun Tzu's The Art of War, like a good general knows when he can win and when he can't win. And that's what always impressed me about Eumenes. He would dig his heels in. He could come back from nothing. The man was like, the man had nine lives. I gotta, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, in one of our shocking instances, I'm going to give him more points than you did. Because I don't think, I, I think I'm always the hard one. I'm going to give him an eight. Okay, then I'll give him a seven. Ooh, so that's 15. All right. Eutychia. Success. That gets tricky. It does get tricky. Um, because ultimately he was not successful. Yeah, we got to hold ourselves to the same standard oh. that we held like to like with Arhadias where through no well, fault of his own, he just didn't do anything. Yeah, to give some much. refresher on our Eutychia scores so far, Arhadias got a one. <laughs> Eurydice and Perdiccas have sixes and then Antipater has a 15. And I feel like I would maybe kind of have to put him into that same range of Eurydice yeah. and Perdiccas. Like the sixes? A total of six minutes. We each gave Perdiccas and Eurydice three each. Yeah. 
And I think the only reason, too, that Antipater is so high is because he has the benefit of having died of old age, seemingly having been successful. You know, okay. he, just, he just went out before there was time for the plan to be ruined. How about I go first? Because now I have an argument in my head. Mm-hmm. I get what you're saying in the context of Eumenes not getting a lot with success because he was always on the run. He could never have the opportunity to do anything, which is not his fault, but still, you know, the point. And yet... We have instances of him showing a great deal of prudence and wisdom in the context of administration, which surpassed even, you know, Perdiccas or Antipater, for instance. He understood the problem that he was a Greek, he could not command the same legitimacy of the Macedonian officers, and he's like, I will get around that. He set up the ghost on the throne, understanding that I need everyone to follow my orders but it's not about me. So even though he didn't have time to administer his holdings, those glimpses along the way show a man who was a genius. I would give him a five. And that's just because he didn't have a chance to do much. (laughs) Okay, what? What? See, I feel like that just undermined it all. It's like, I would give him a five because he didn't get to do much. But I can't give him a three like Eurydice and, and Perdiccas who did things. He deserves more credit than Perdiccas, definitely. Most people do. I've just missed the point where we've suddenly become such an anti-Perdicus podcast. I didn't I dislike him. We were always him. anti-Perdican. I've never disliked him. I mean, I, I don't dislike him. I just like to make fun of him. Okay. I will say, his, I, think, yeah. I think a lot of the points you made yeah. will fall so more so under the battle prowess category. That's, that's... You want to give five? Yeah. Okay, I'll stick with three. So that'll okay. be eight. Does it, that, it means does... He, that means he beats Perdicus, right? It does. Then I can sleep tonight. That's all that matters. Akon. Image. What's this man look like, Meredith? I got some stuff for you. You got stuff? I'm going to text it over. Oh. Well, first off, none of it is contemporary. So that's a zero. No, I'm joking. No, it is not. I'm joking. I'm just prefacing. Ooh, I got a text from Meredith. Oh, I know what this is. Yeah, so that is a depiction of him and Neapolitus going hand to hand. Oh, wait a minute. We might need to give him another point for that. I forgot about that. Yeah. What do we give him for uh, Aristea? Right now he's got a 15, which makes him just behind Philip and Alexander at 18. Give him one more because this image right here of the wrestling match on the horses. Yeah. At least one more point from me. Yeah. That was so awesome. And that battle scene of like, and he hacked him in the knee and then he stabbed him in the groin. Yes, I'm looking at an image. Meredith, describe this image. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, uh, it's got the point where they're two horses meet and they're grabbing onto each other and you can see the horses still kind of in forward motion. I also like that everyone fighting around them has kind of stopped to turn and look oh at what's God. happening. <laughs> Just um, Yo, know, right I, I have something. not thought about that until just now. Like, yeah, like... Yeah, like, this one guy over to the right of the picture is even still, like, holding up the body of the guy he presumably just killed and has stopped to look at it. I thought of it, like, maybe that guy fainted. <laughs> maybe. That's another thought. <laughs> We've got that. Next one is just, like, a 17th century engraving of him just standing there. I mean, I, I don't think anything too crazy impressive. I like the battle picture much more. I like how, like, in the 17th century and stuff like that, whenever they draw someone, they're, like, ripped AF and swole, but still somehow, like, a fat baby. A little pudgy. The little cherub thing, right? Mm-hmm. The yeah. face. The face is always very uh-huh. cherubic. So that's some good representation, too, for me. Just a two? No, you're right. That battle scene 
that really that clearly imprinted itself in people's minds over the course of centuries and that yeah. deserves recognition that's really what the word acon means it's not just images like icon or like simulacra or you know representation and things mm -hmm. so i would three for me yeah i would i would go five so that sure. would give him an eight sure i'll be the bad guy <laughs> just because it's cool yeah all right how about mania craziness this is a perfectly sane man. This man is very smart. This man mm -hmm. has never done anything wrong in his life. And I think even, too, in the future, Mania could come to encompass the idea of kind of like scandal and everything like that. But yeah, regardless. I agree. I've been thinking There's a about range that. within the category. And yeah. regardless of that, I don't think he hits no, any of it. No, I think it was like episode two. We decided Mania can best be described maybe as what the hell were you thinking? And mm -hmm. I'm looking back at you, Minis, and... At my most critical, like when he's feuding with Hephaestion and stuff like that. Even then, I'm like, I mean, that's human. That's a human yeah, thing. Well, I'd be mad, too. <laughs> I was about to say, at least in the examples you gave me, Hephaestion started it. I mean, you, yeah, and it's like, you give my room away to a flute player, I'm going to get mad. Now, and... I would have given him points if his response wasn't to go complain to Alex and his response was instead to go, like, hack Hephaestion's head off. Sure, then I would have, but he didn't. He just yeah. went and complained to the, to the manager. Absolutely, you know, mm -hmm. it's just like he didn't do it. Yeah, no, zero. All right, and Kronos time for this one. I, even though we started covering him at three twenty-three, that's when he's active, but that's not yeah. when he technically, which qualified, yeah, which qualified him for our podcast to get his own episode. If we're to believe the accounts of these letters, this would be three eighteen that he was given this legal appointment as a co-regent. And then he dies in 316. Okay. So that's two years. So that gives him a 1.3, which is the shortest thus far. Yeah, it is what it is, man. And finally, catastrophe. Uh, did he die a peaceful death? No. He got strangled. No. He got yeah. just strangled. After okay. he was going to be starved. Well, now I was about to say, did he probably go the better way? The starving thing is horrible, but I feel like it's maybe less traumatic. That's strangling thing. That's horror movie stuff. Well, they could have let him... This sounds so morbid and yeah. to discuss. They could have let him kill himself. That's the ancient way? He said that! Yeah, he was like, before we take me over. Let me die. Sword, one handed. Yeah. Like, at least give me a shiv or let me grow a fingernail out. <laughs> <laughs> Something like Okay. That What's... brings us to a grand total of 33.3. Better than Perticus. Yeah, actually. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> he beat Purdy! Yeah, he beat oh, Antipater, too. You know, obviously not counting Philip and Alexander. That would put him in the lead. You're damn right it does. <laughs> he deserves it. He's best boy. He deserves boy. it all. Which begs the question, Meredith, would you stop someone on the street and tell them about you minis? Does he get the Alexander standard? Yeah. Yes, he does. I totally agree. I was ready for this. I was waiting. I was like, I I can't wait because like you made a good argument for Eurydice. And I was like, no, she totally gets it. But I was already going to say it for you, Minis. My man's got the standard. I will say it was interesting because because as we were finishing up that first day of recording, yeah. I just wasn't. Oh yeah. I really wasn't getting it because <laughs> like everyone doesn't know this, but like yeah. I was. I well, you were like he's the greatest, and then when we published. 
Arhidaeus and Eurydice, do you think you can rule Persia, was like, I'm so excited for my best boy Eumenes. And yeah. even as I was going through the Hellenistic podcasts, yeah. images, or even just references to him, it, it was always just like such adoration of like, right. oh, my best boy, my best boy. And I'm just, but then as I was sitting and editing it and yeah. then letting it seep in and I wasn't well, happy to try and take it all in at once. Right. You were not listening to a co-host repeat several things three times in a row because he <laughs> couldn't take work. two, take two, take two. <laughs> so it's more coming across in like good succession. Like, oh, it's this does sound cool. Story. The next episode is going to be Alexander the Fourth, the baby. And I'm really excited about the next few episodes because, again, Alexander's only been dead since 323. Eumenes dies in 316. We've only gone seven years. <laughs> <laughs> but we're about to jump forward about four years for Alexander the Fourth, so time's going to start a moving now. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. You can also follow us on Facebook at the Alexander Standard Podcast, Instagram at Alexander Standard Pod, Twitter at Alex Standard Pod, and you can also email us at alexanderstandardpod at gmail.com. And this has been the Alexander Standard. <laughs>